the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Jesse Hemphill. Jesse is an Indigenous community planner and facilitator working in communities all across Canada. For me, Jesse is just someone I love talking to. So I'm going to keep the intro short because our conversation is long. I connected with Jesse in an online call. She was at home in Nanaimo, BC. So, Jesse, can you start by talking a bit of uh, about the identities that you lead with when you're walking through the world? Tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you see yourself. Sure. So, I am uh, um, Gaelic has left Nanaimuch. I'm in Nanaimuch territory right now, but I'm Kwakwakiwak. Um, so I'm from the Napatao and Liguiklao peoples of the Kwakwakiwak nation, um, the Henderson family, and then also Metis on my dad's side, although I found that out later in life. So we're the Marion family from um, the Forks area in Winnipeg, and then a bunch of European, mostly Celtic, thrown in there as well from both sides. Um, so that's my heritage, but I was really raised with a connection to my Nakuto heritage in the Guasanakuto community in Port Hardy, which is where I grew up on the north end of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Can you describe what the language was that you just introduced yourself? Oh, like, yeah. Just for the people who are listening who are like, I think they're static. No, you were speaking something. Sure. So Nuku'am means um, I am or my name is, and then Logula or Dlafulilogwa um, is my Indian name. And it actually means bridge between the worlds um, in one interpretation of it. So I can talk about that more in a bit. And then I said Gayukan Mach, um, which means I come from Nakoto. Uh, Lu means and. Ligwiklau, And then I said Gayla which means thank you. Um, which is the name of the indigenous peoples, the first nation from the Nanaimo area. So uh, that's what my grandma told me. That's a good way to introduce myself, to tell you who I am, where I come from, and to thank the people on whose land I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what language were you speaking? Mm, um, lots of people know it as Kwakwa or Bakumkiala. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's the language of the northern tip of Vancouver Island. Yeah. It's, it's southern Wakashan if you're a linguist. So also like the central coast um, mm-hmm. has some dialects of part of that language group. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very cool. Okay. I, I sort of interjected. So that's that's okay. Please carry on. Um, because of course, I'm, I love that I suggested you come on the show and talk about being between two worlds. And that's your action. I know. I know. It's okay. so yeah, awesome. You just carry on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I also, I don't look super first nations, even though that's the culture that I most identify with. So that's always been an interesting thing that I have this ability, I think, to pass in either either world, right? I can pass as white, um, but I can also 
I mean, pass in my own community, obviously, and in First Nations communities. Uh, in, in Port Hardy, it's interesting because it's quite a rural place. So I have a rural, very nature-based upbringing. But then I went to university in Victoria, which for me is a city, you know, and uh, I do a lot of work now in cities. Nanaimo, where I live now, has about 100,000 people. So I have this mixed rural urban lived experience as well. And then even in Port Hardy growing up, when I was in elementary school, we lived in town, um, not on reserve, but I went to elementary school on reserve. Uh, and had lunch at my grandma's down the road every day. And then in high school, near the end of high school, we moved onto the reserve, but I was going to school in town. <laughs> so back and forth all the time, just a foot in both worlds. And uh, yeah, for my coming of age ceremony, um, when I was a young woman, my mom, uh, my parents organized a feast where I got my name at that time, like my, my coming of age name, my adult name, um, Klali Logula. Uh, from Daisy Seawood Smith in Cam River. And the, it came from a dream that my mom had. Um, and without going into detail, two interpretations I've heard are this bridge between the worlds, uh, particularly the spiritual and the secular worlds, or the undersea kingdom and the, the, the world that we live in, in our mythology. Uh, and then another interpretation I've had is uh, leader leader of the pack kind of or the whale pod actually um, or leadership in some sense so I like that idea of bridging being in between not out front but there's a leadership piece to that as well mm. Mm. that's beautiful yeah and then um, I think I just always I, I was thinking about it this year that my place seems to be um, in that in-between zone, or I think of it as like the knuckle between two things where they kind of rub up against each other. I seem to always be in that space of not a hundred percent comfortable really anywhere, but I, but I really like that in-between space. So whether it's kind of translating um, between rural and urban and translating the values of, of each to the other or doing reconciliation work for non-Indigenous folks or with non-Indigenous folks, or bringing um, technical skills from academia into Indigenous communities, um, or advocating for women or youth or Indigenous people in seats of power within local government, or <laughs> translating government policy when I'm doing work in communities. like this is where I seem to find myself really often is um, knowing enough about each side to help bridge those gaps to, to like be in that knuckle when not many other people want to be. Mm -hmm. um, but then the sacrifice is, is that you're never a hundred percent belonging or comfortable in any of those spaces. Mm -hmm. Well, and you also put yourself into what I can only imagine. I mean, honestly, when I think of my nightmare job or experience it would be running for public office <laughs> and you did that <laughs> at quite a young age and so even then you were bridging between kind of this very um i'm going to say adult establishment you know power um center of government municipal government it doesn't matter if you're in a small town you still have to get elected you still have to persuade you still have to um prove yourself and you're also still 
targeted, or at least you become quite vulnerable because you see you're stepping out as a public figure. But you did this as a female, uh, as an indigenous woman, as a young woman, you know, who, who really could had lots of other things she could have been doing right then. So can you tell me about either the day or the moment or the incident that make, made you say, I'm going to run for public office? Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny story, actually. So, yeah, in 2011, um, I ran for council for the district of Port Hardy. Um, so this is not the not my band council. This is town council. And uh, I ran really I'd had a lot of people in the community asking if I would consider running. And I had been in leadership roles since elementary school, student council and then Aboriginal student rep at university. And I had been doing a lot of community work leading up to the election, but I hadn't, it seemed, I, I think I genuinely thought that only businessmen like were qualified to run for council <laughs> yeah. or that you needed, that the, you needed to be a member of the Rotary Club or something. Like I just was confused about the qualifications, which I think is the case for most people when we don't see ourselves reflected in those seats of power, we think they're not accessible to us. And that is not the case. But uh, what happened was I'd had a few people asking if I would run, but then the mayor at the time who was running for re-election talked my husband into running for council because he is a really outgoing, gregarious, community-minded guy. He's a person of color. Um, he was working in education and the arts and different things, and she thought he would be a good fit. And so he decided to throw his hat in the ring, and he didn't grow up in Port Hardy. I dragged him up there. And so I thought, well, if you're going to run for council – I may as well run for council and then we can do it together <laughs> and it'll be fun. Like we can spend time painting our signs and stuff. And um, I also had, you know, senior sort of statesmen from the community taking my parents out for dinner to try and get them to put the pressure on and stuff. So, so Jermaine and I decided to run at the same time. And uh, my, this is the beauty thing about small towns is uh just the investment is so much more about your social capital, I think, than your money. So I literally hand painted my own signs with my own face on them. <laughs> and I um, made a pamphlet that outlined my, my platform. Um, but I spelled my own last name wrong on it. <laughs> and so I handed them to the all candidates meeting. And then my mom spent the whole mingling time after the, the speeches, collecting them back from people so nobody would notice. <laughs> uh, and that was it. So I spent 50 bucks on my first campaign and I, I got in. I think I did pretty good. Um, Wait a second. Time. How did Jermaine do? Jermaine did not get in. Oh, <laughs> but, oh, it, but it was okay. <laughs> and in retrospect, he's really glad he didn't because it ended up being a lot of work. And he's another cool, cool thing. So. Um, so my experience has been nothing but positive, really. Like, because I grew up there, I think, and I had a lot of family in town, uh, um, really people were just so excited because I tick all the minority boxes. I'm a young woman and I'm First Nations. And there had been other people that had been on council that um, had family connections, you know, or were status Indian um, or from other communities and stuff, but I, I think I'm the first person to like grow up there to have connections to a local reserve and a local family um, to be elected to council and the youngest woman ever at, at age 27. And so um, I think everyone just kind of took me under their wing 
but not in a patronizing way either. And I really, um, I'm really pleased. I know this is not everyone's experience being a minority, you know, in a, in a role like that, but I was, I never felt patronized or disrespected or that anyone treated me as though my age or my background were disadvantaged. And I had to argue for my ideas just like everybody else, but I was able to push some of them ahead and um, see positive changes in the community. And so I think particularly in small rural communities, anyone Anyone considering running for office, particularly if you are outside of the norm, um, you should totally do it. it. It's a very different thing, I think, in the smaller communities. It's mm. a much, uh, I don't know, like a sweet, mm. um, helpful, collaborative thing. Or can be. I know not all councils get along, but ours really did. You know, I was reelected in the last election, so... Um, elected for two terms and although it was a lot of work and there's a lot of tedium involved which I think may turn away people there's a lot of tedium a lot of hours a lot of technical information but uh, it's such a great place to be and such a great place to advocate for your values and your people Mm -hmm. and um not this exclusive club that it's made out to be. And my, my sense is that the general population is so excited to see different fresh faces in those roles that um, it's, there's a lot of opportunity, especially for, um, like I say, people outside of the norm, you know, the older white men, nothing against them. There's some awesome older white men. Up there. <laughs> but I mean, that's really heartening to hear that you had a, a great experience and that, you know, your, your council was able to find some common ground and push things forward. Now you are continuing your education and community planning. And I find this really fascinating because I don't know if I could think of, I mean, well, I, I, I definitely could think of other areas, but, but in terms of just choosing a path um, that has a really colonial, like colonizing stamp on it, I would think that <laughs> community planning, like right up there with um, all of the problems <laughs> that we could think of with, um, you know, settler culture imposing a way of being and, um, you know, just, just, yeah, there's, I could imagine there's a lot of problems there. So, so how, what are you thinking? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fair question. So I did my undergraduate degree at UVic in Victoria on linguistics, and I was going to do language revitalization. But in the last couple years of my degree, I became really disillusioned with the feasibility of doing language revitalization without concurrent um, health improvements and educational improvements and economic development and governance reform and all these things. It just felt like the siloed approach to community building was not going to work. And so along came this job posting in my home community for a comprehensive community planning assistant. And I didn't really know much about it, but I applied and I got the job and sort of fell into this world of comprehensive community planning. Can you kind of define that? Yeah, I will. Sounds really good, (laughs) but I don't know that I've seen it in practice. Yeah, this is a community planning model that was created by First Nations in British Columbia in the mid-2000s as a reaction against that kind of colonial planning you're talking about. So Indian and Northern, or Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada 
requires Indian bands, quote unquote, to do all kinds of planning, like a health plan, asset management plan, financial plan, blah, blah, blah. And communities were just getting really sick of having to do all these plans with these templates created by the government, giving them information that was useful to the government, if at all, and certainly not to the communities. So these communities, First Nations communities came up with this model and they were like, we want to do planning that is comprehensive. So we want to honor the holistic connections between all these different areas that health and education and governance and the land um, and our, our culture and infrastructure, all these things are all interconnected. We can't plan for any one of them without talking about the others. Then second of all, we want it to be long range. So we don't want to have to redo these plans for you every year or every three years we want to, we think in like 25 to 100 year cycles, and we want to be allowed to plan on that time scale. And then thirdly, we want it to be created by the community. So we don't want you to force us to bring in um, professional planners or consulting companies to do these plans for us, you know, with templates and checklists and in the municipal fashion. We want it to come from our community in an authentic way that reflects our local culture and context. And so amazingly, um, the federal government said, okay, we'll support that. Okay, can I just stop you? That is amazing because we're talking about the Harper government, right? No, or was it? Yeah, 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 I guess it was. I, I mean, I got to <laughs> say... like somebody some... was asleep at the wheel on that one. <laughs> Thank God, yeah. Well, yeah, Colette Anderson and, and um, later Bronwyn Geddes from INAC, BC region, have been amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Gwen Phillips described them as salmon swimming upstream, just fighting the good fight for years. So this model started then, and really it's just taken off. And now um, over half of BC's First Nations are doing comprehensive community plans or CCPs and just this year it's going national so I think yes community planning has this terrible colonial history my own nation was relocated from our homelands on the mainland to Vancouver Island in a really crappy way Um, but there's this reclamation I think of community planning as a way to do like grassroots kind of radical community planning that is also cultural revitalization, empowerment, connection with the land, um, bringing back language and culture and building in conflict resolution processes in communities, just all the good things um, when it's done well. And it's done differently everywhere, and that's how it's supposed to work. So I think the community planning model, it's really interesting and really different. And so I've been doing it for about eight years now, working with communities all over Canada, and uh, it just felt like a good time to go back to school, take a couple years. Uh, on the one hand, to make sure that I'm not missing any skills when I'm going out to work in our communities, but also to bring this cool model into uh, planning academia. Because I think on the municipal side of things, we really miss the boat in community planning. I think the citizen engagement, um, participatory decision making, you know, conflict resolution instead of conflict avoidance all these things are really happening in indigenous communities or first nations communities but not so much in the municipal world we kind of avoid conflict at all costs and are very reliant on consultants to to drive the planning processes and they really happen in a templated um, fashion and so so partly i wanted to go to for the masters to bring this eight years of lived experience in communities all over the place into the dialogue around 
current community planning practices in Canada. Wow. Wow. I'm just feeling like as I'm listening to you, I'm like, thank God somebody really good is doing this kind of work. I want to shift the conversation a little bit because you, um, in the, in the beginning, you talked about growing up in this, you know, beautiful rural setting. So can you just go back to your childhood and tell us a little bit about like, what was it like growing up as little Jesse in the forest by the sea? What was your upbringing like going home to your grandma's? Like, what do you, what do you think about when you think about your childhood? Oh yeah. I just get warm fuzzies. Oh man. Um, I think my parents are so awesome. We're super tight. And when my parents moved to Port Hardy, a lot of their family, especially my mom's side, followed them up there. So when I was little Jesse, uh, I had two sets of grandparents in Port Hardy, Grandma Jean and Grandpa Hemphill. So my non-First Nations grandparents um, who took us to Sunday school and took us to the bunny park and to the playground and stuff and the teas at church and just all the ladylike kind of stuff. And then my grandma Lucy and my grandpa Oscar on the reserve. So my mom's mom um, and her partner who were, who took us out on the back roads and took us berry picking and to go look at the birds and, and uh, just, uh, I don't know, softness and warmth, like just safe places all around. And then a ton of uncles and aunts and cousins and stuff. So I also have a younger sister by two and a half years and then nine years younger a brother who's seen Richie. And uh, so growing up, just family everywhere, like tons of family gatherings, you know, 30 people for Thanksgiving dinner, um, watching cartoons at grandma's with my cousins till way later than we should have. And, you know, parties at, at our house, just everyone loving and laughing. And, and, uh, my mom worked actually, and my dad stayed home. My dad's an artist and my mom's our chief negotiator. So shifted gender roles. And then my dad also had a boat when I was a kid in an old Japanese fishing boat. So we spent a lot of time out um, on little islands for Easter picnics or over in Blendon Harbor, out in the homelands, right? Um, and really just my sister and I a lot of the time. So, and I was also quite an outcast in elementary school because I was a chubby, white-looking bookworm, you know, kid with glasses and braces and a, a, a really different home life than a lot of the kids that I was going to school with. Mm. So uh, I was really just a loner, like in the bushes all the time with my little jackknife and my, <laughs> um, I don't know, uh, but I, I don't, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful way to grow up, even that loner aspect, um, just spending all that time alone in the woods and all that time with family and really bonding with the grownups in, in my life. Mm. Um, so who um, taught you or who would you say mentored or, um, or, uh, held space for your spiritual life growing up? Mm, that's a good, this is a good question. Um, you're poking at the soft underbelly, <laughs> Carmen. I think, well, like I say, we had these two sets of grandparents that watched my sister and I a lot. So it was, first of all, my parents are both spiritual, I would say, but not explicitly not dogmatic so we pray at home um but the form in which we pray or to whom we pray isn't so um rigid and so my dad's dad and stepmom you know we had the sunday school influence there and they took us to church and christmas services and stuff and 
I think through them, I connected with the church community, like the communal aspect of it. And certainly as a teenager, I was really involved in Christian youth group and the church community and then came, fell away from it later on. Um, But I, I have a lot of love and respect for the Christian, for any religious community in the sense that it brings people together. um, And there's a, that sense of communal purpose and um, connection to God or the creator and community service is I, that was a really strong influence, I think. And yeah, just that idea of, of spiritual practice. But then on the other side, my grandma Lucy and grandpa Oscar, like grandpa Oscar was a self-professed agnostic. So he, he was Finnish, so he wasn't, you know, he, he passed away in April this year and wasn't really sure what he believed in. But my grandma Lucy was very, a very interesting mix of, uh, you know, some Christian influences, but also really nature, like God is in nature. And I remember as a kid, her telling us not to kill creatures, even mosquitoes, because it could be a manifestation of God in that moment. And you're, um, you're essentially killing God. You know, I remember being terrified of that as a kid, (laughs) but also just building in this reverence for nature and, uh, and, and my parents really, I think my dad especially has this idea that God's in everything. I mean, you go out in the woods and there's God and you don't need to be in a church to pray. And then my granny, my dad's mom, who wasn't around as much, but still really close to her granny, Marion, um, was also very, very religious, but in a cheeky kind of sweet way, you know, like the idea that God or Jesus snuggles her every night in her old age. And so she isn't lonely. Um, <laughs> she had spent time around nuns and, and different things. So, so quite a like mix. And then obviously the, the, um, quack, 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 the legends and the, the ideas of the different, the spiritual world and our mythological figures and, um, the transformer and all, all those different stories. So I think I grew up feeling like they all make sense and they all fit. And, and it just like the golden rule, right? As long as you're not hurting anybody um, or do unto others or however it manifests itself, that that is important and that you should have some um, sense of spiritual life. But um, when it gets dogmatic or when you're judging or hurting other people because of their beliefs or your own, then that is getting away from um, the whole, the point of, mm-hmm. of it all. Mm-hmm. Can you, in, in the beginning of the, you were talking about this kind of, it almost seemed like this upper world where the, the humans dwell in, in the quack, 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 uh, mythology and then there's like the supernatural world was underwater or something yeah Yeah. is it okay to talk a bit about that yeah I don't know as much about it as I would like to but uh, of course we're coastal people like our villages were built on the along the water the shore front and we were in canoes all the time and so yeah in our cosmology most of the supernatural creatures live under the sea there's like the undersea kingdom and the idea that um their big houses and, you know, feasts and different things happening under the, the world. And like, I don't know if it exactly corresponds with heaven, but, but my sense is that uh, it's similar. Just the spirit world is down there and we're up here. So rather than traveling up into the clouds to get to the spirit world, although I think we do have legends around that too, it's more like going under the surface of the water down to where uh, the supernatural creatures were and sometimes they would take off their animal form and become 
um, a different form. And sometimes people would go down and steal their, you know, their robe or whatever and become their animal form and different things like that. So a lot of um, things around transformation, which ties really into this idea too of intercultural and bridging, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of being able to put on someone else's coat and assume their form for a while might trick everyone into believing you <laughs> and yeah, to get home and sounds, take it off. Yeah, very magical and very trickster, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because you don't know who you're dealing with then. And, then, and, and I think about um, what must a person believe or perceive about just the world in general if the kind of, I don't know, heaven Valhalla the supernatural place is under the water and you can't quite see and everything's kind uh-huh. of dimmed and it's like you just have completely different senses you don't even breathe air anymore it's like wow yeah. that's really cool to be able to um conjure an, a, an ability to sort of empathize or know a different way of being so well that you could imagine living there yeah it is interesting I think about it too sometimes when I'm out on the boat the idea you know under the water it's so dark and so Mm. cold and so so different than in the sky yeah how um how interesting that that would be um yeah there's just such a a totally magical (laughs) yeah totally so uh I have to um credit you Jesse and I'm going to do this publicly with really uh completely changing the trajectory of my life simply by casting a spell with some words that you said so we were both at a public event that our mutual friend Aftab Airfan was hosting uh and and she specializes in this group process format called deep democracy and you can do all kinds of stuff with it but one thing you can do is have civic dialogues and Aftab had been asking my husband and I to come to this <laughs> civic dialogue entitled is hope bullshit and I was like we're not going to that because we're just getting roped in as the only people that she can reliably know will stand <laughs> on the yes, it's bullshit side. And like, I don't need to pay money to go and have a room full of people tell me that I'm being a Debbie Downer. Like, I'm not going to go. And eventually we got cajoled and I was like, fine, I'll go. And like, I'll, I'll stand on the side of yes, it's bullshit. And let me tell you why. And so we go to this whole big day long thing and it's as bad as I anticipated. I I felt like I was having to hold up half the sky as they say, right? Like it was just like, yeah, the, the hopium in the room was like suffocating me. But we get to the end of the day and here this woman, lovely Jessie Hemphill, who I wasn't friends with yet, but I knew of and slightly had been introduced to, stands up at the end and says, I see now and hear now that when I'm working in Indigenous communities and I don't hold space for collective expression and forms of grief and rage, I am doing a disservice to that community and I am not helping anyone to move this process forward. And you just lasered in on it for me, that it was grief and rage having public forums for the collective grief and rage that not just indigenous communities but anybody suddenly I was like oh my god 
why don't we have space in our culture for grief or rage since they are drivers and they are, they're, they're like ever present, you know, scratch the surface. And you said, so this is the opportunity for people to subgroup and talk about other things. And you're like, I'm going to go over here in this corner and talk about grief and rage. <laughs> and like 20 of us go over. And, and it was so brilliant because Myrna Lewis, the co-creator of this process thought, Oh, I'm going to go over to where the heavy stuff is happening and I'll help Jesse with the heavy lifting here of facilitating this discussion and she has this beautiful way of like inviting anyone who wants to to speak and if you don't want to speak you don't have to but then she like makes eye contact with you (laughs) holds her palm open towards you in this imploring warm kind of way would you like to speak and she kept coming around to me and of course all I could do was bawl I silently bawled and like defiantly bawled while other people talked and I could not keep my shit together I bawled and bawled and bawled and it was the most cathartic thing and it was like you gave me oxygen by saying the magic words grief and rage and it like cast a spell and I had this whole insight about how lonely conviction is how lonely it is to talk about grief and rage and it's helped me understand why you know the reconciliation process for instance is so difficult because where do settlers and white people put grief and rage and and regret and remorse and like where do we put stuff and and how do we even face the graciousness that's been extended to us by so many first nations neighbors of forgiveness and resilience and and even opening conversation, like, I, I mean, it's just completely opened my life in, in a very rich way. I've also been shattered a lot of the time, but I thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to finally put language to it. So I wanted to kind of um, acknowledge that and tell that story, but I, I want to end the, the show on the new closing question uh, moving forward. I don't know if the Numinous podcast happens in seasons, but this is this is definitely a shift. And it's so perfect that you are my first guest for this because it was um, really, it was gifted to me by you. I would like to know, Jesse, how do you cope with grief and rage when you look around at the world? What are the things that you do to manage those difficult emotions? Oh, probably a lot of unhealthy things (laughs) um, that I'm trying to grow out of. Although sometimes it it like, uh, I mean, I have a serious answer to this, but sometimes it's just about committing to a bottle of wine and like a a 4am Netflix binge. I was totally going to say, do you drink? I drink. I drink cocktails. And and I feel so much better. And I'm not trying to condone alcohol. No, I'm I'm definitely trying to grow out of that habit. But... But I think um, a first step in that for me has been like just giving, if I know that that's something, especially with death, like with certain things that are just too big, it's like, I'm not going to draw this out over a couple of weeks. I'm going to like polish off a whole bottle tonight and just weep into my pillow and mm-hmm. stay up way too late. And Jermaine, my husband, I'll give him the warning not to worry about me that I'm going to be okay tomorrow. Uh, but, but really, I think I've been trying to develop healthier tools around this lately and so um it's so like typical new age urbanite but but yoga like yin yoga in particular has been a a mental health saving grace for me this this last couple years when I've been away from my family so I think it used to be 
uh, family, right? That we would just get together and have a dinner or, or um, hang out together and cry together or whatever, just that share that, that sense of grief. You know, I had a young cousin pass away a couple years ago and within a day there was like 20 of us that had just dropped everything and went to Campbell river. And then we rented a big house and just stayed there for a week. Like just like 20 of us all together, just like, you know, going through it together. But, but in the absence of that, um, yeah, yoga helps a lot. And when none of those things are available, bottle of wine and a, yeah. a Netflix you know binge. I recently developed an allergy to yeast and I can't drink wine or beer or cider. So I was dry for, I don't know, six weeks, no alcohol. And, um, you know, had to be like, okay, so grief still here. I was happy that it wasn't in any more or less quantity that I had. I wasn't like dulling down. It was like a pretty steady state mm-hmm. of grief. Um, but I kind of had to do the same thing where just I could just give myself permission not to use the anesthetic of productivity. I needed to just like cry into my pillow and just be like, you know what? I know it's daylight and I'm just going to stay here and like, I'm just going to keep using a book as a way to keep putting me back to sleep because I fall asleep within 20 minutes of starting to read. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Um, same kind of thing, though, that it's like I have to um, give myself permission to use those healthy uh, ways of coping with grief and rage because so many of my ways of coping are unhealthy, like productivity, like working. And things like oh, that. Yeah. I've been there too. You know, when my grandma Lucy passed away eight years ago, I uh, was working as a community planner. And I remember one night in particular, there was a bunch of drama, family stuff going on around it. And I'd been up till 4am. Like it had been straight days and days of just craziness, traveling and stuff. And then that night I'd been up till 4am with some crisis. And I woke up at seven and was in the office by eight. Like, dying, you know, (laughs) and my boss came in. He's like, what are you doing here? Like, I'm just, I have so much work to do. And it was totally just pushing it off, um, not, not facing it. And so, yeah, ugly crying in the car, you know, when a song comes on, like all, yes. I've done all of it. Yes, <laughs> I think yes. counseling would probably be a good thing. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, hopefully that's a, uh, a skill and a lesson that I'll learn yeah, as I no, get older. I, I really appreciate your honesty because that's really what I'm going for. And, I, you know, I've, I've heard uh, interviews. I, I can't remember what it is. I'd have to ask my husband, Ruben, but um, I know that there is a pretty famous article of well-known um, environmentalists like David Suzuki and Bill Reese and people like that. And it's like, what do you do to cope with demoralization? And like to a man, it was drink. <laughs> it was like, and these are, you know, academics, these are, you know, how do you cope when you're a climate scientist and like so many of them? Oh like, gosh. You don't cope. What are you talking about? How do you, so I, I really appreciate you setting the bar high with your honesty, <laughs> just saying like, yeah. uh, you know, just like the rest of us, I model through and try to use what feels good. And I do think that yin yoga, it's like, there's something gentle and releasing. And yeah. I think uh, also like I, I'm okay to hang on to it. Like as a facilitator, I think one of my skills is I always have this simmering level of my own sort of grief and the tears are always pretty close to the surface. And it's kind of a become a hallmark. I think of my facilitation that someone will cry at some point in the day. And I think that is very human um, and not something to apologize for. And so um, I, I, 
I try to let to give myself the space to feel whatever I'm feeling in in the professional world. Um, and fortunately, I think in our First Nations communities, that um, is really accepted. So, so not always trying to deal with it in the sense of like get rid of the grief and rage, but but more like just recognizing that it's there, dealing with it in a way that allows me to carry on, but also not thinking that I need to carry on with a mask of mm. um, cheerfulness when or pretend that everything's all right when. Um, there's a lot of things that are not all right. And we need to hold that awareness, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Those are very good lessons. And I, and I would say that in my limited time, like relatively limited time, probably more than most of my fellow settlers, uh, but in my limited time in community and circle with First Nations, uh, and listening to elders and listening to truth and reconciliation testimony and things like that. Um, I, I really learned about spaciousness in discourse and just, you know, like, okay, somebody's feeling emotional and then everybody just waits. Like it's totally not a big deal. Maybe somebody will go up and stand beside them as like a supporter. Um, Mm. But there's like, there's no kind of talking over it. There's no rushing to help. And it, there's just no rushing. There's just like tons of spaciousness around that. And then the wave passes and the next thing comes. And, it, and, and you feel, I have felt uh, more bonded in the human family because of that. Because people haven't rushed over and been like, but you're doing so. You know, like there hasn't been the, the rush to... to um, um, pacify or sort of nullify that. I've really learned that that's, that's something that um, I don't feel in my bones. I've, and what, what really inspires me though by that is it actually is learnable. I've gotten really good at just waiting, not like impatiently, but just like waiting it out in myself or other people and like letting people wait for me. <laughs> and like not letting people stand there and apologize for them, you know, being emotional, but just like telling, you know, that's okay. That's been, um, that's really enriched my life. So I've definitely appreciated that. I said it was the last question, but I have one more and this might actually be too tangential, but, um, I brought up truth and reconciliation and, you know, so you're a person who's walked between the worlds and just like the rest of us in Canada, you have to walk this path of reconciliation. When I listen to you though, your story does not sound like um, a, a sort of quote unquote typical indigenous experience. Like how did your fa- did your family and if they did, how did they sidestep the residential school legacy? Yeah. Um, this is another great question. I think about this really often. Uh, so both of, well, my grandmother uh, was mixed, you know, settler and First Nations. So her mom was in English and her dad was Nakbatao Scottish. And so my great grandfather, James Henderson, or Pa, um, I think, the stories sort of go that he made a pretty intentional decision to try and raise his kids with, um, you know, on the farm away from the traditional territories outside of the big house system. Um, and I, I'm not sure of the logistics, but grandma didn't have status. And so she went to Indian day school instead of residential school, mm. I think. And so, um, there was a sacrifice in the sense that pause, 
brother, Numitsa, you know, chose to raise his kids in a more cultural way. And now they're, they have that culture so strong in their family. They're artists and singers and, you know, they're really in the cultural system. And my family is not, uh, we don't have the artists and the singers and the dancers in the same way in our side of the family. And I think, so that was my great grandfather's choice. And then my mom um, was the first one in the family to go to university and she studied history and got pregnant with me when she was at UBC. Uh, um, and it's, yeah, just different, different choices along the way to, to be in a different world. And so I remember in my mid twenties, uh, I was having a bit of an identity crisis because you're right. I did not grow up in a typical way um, that a lot of my colleagues and my peers did. And I think I didn't um, suffer as much as a lot of them do and a lot of this, how the stereotypes play out. And so I had a lot of feelings of guilt about that. I think like, what right do I have to be working in communities when I didn't even grow up super Indian, you know, or I don't have this history of, of all these abuses and stuff. And what right do I have to be leading this work in communities? I'm, or to call myself first nations, you know, da, da, da. And I remember like really beating myself up over this. And then uh, I was sitting on my back porch one day and it was like a flash, like a cathartic, you know, paradigm shift. And it was just like this message of, do you know how fucking hard those previous generations worked so that I could be exactly where I am with exactly the level of privilege and wellness (laughs) that I have? And like, how fucking entitled <laughs> to, to feel cheated by that when who knows how many generations back they had to make tough choices and sacrifices so that the next generation could have what they had or live in that different way. And so <laughs> get over yourself, Jesse. <laughs> You're where you are because we put you there and your job is to take every advantage that is gifted to you by virtue of our sacrifices and to recognize that you are just one link in this chain that stretches infinitely backwards and infinitely forward and <laughs> get over it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so um, that uh, really has been the foundation for my work ever since. I think I stopped feeling apologetic about that and, uh, and realized that it was my obligation to those generations that made those sacrifices to appreciate and build on the gifts that I've been given. That is so beautiful. That made us both cry and we didn't hold space because we were both like, I don't want to cry right now. I don't want to have snuffy videos. That was really beautiful. I love that image that you're a link in a chain that's infinitely backwards and infinitely forwards and um, is just another beautiful way to describe you walking between the worlds. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jesse. Oh, my pleasure, Carmen. You're awesome. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Isn't she lovely? I'm not exaggerating when I say that Jessie changed the course of my life with her words. Like, she's just that magic. And to continue the paradox of how she walks that tightrope between different worlds of belonging, I have to say that although Jessie carries many identities, ultimately, with Jessie, what you see is what you get. She's pure heart. And you can feel it, can't you? 
You can find out more about Jesse in the show notes, but I want to highlight that if you're involved in any capacity with urban planning, public consultation, community engagement, or reconciliation work, maybe building settler indigenous alliances, you should check out Jesse's company, alderhill.ca. That's A-L-D-E-R-H-I-L-L dot C-A. And just see about bringing her and her colleagues, Elaine and Chris, into your community to learn about uh, and experience some of their culturally based planning processes. Just before we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to my listeners in Ecuador. Ecuador? I don't, I don't understand. How do people find me? I don't know, but I love it. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with me. And in case you missed it, I've announced the dates for my wilderness quests in 2017. What do you think? You, me, 12 days in the woods, walking the path of spirit together? Get all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. And until next time, take care.